Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray even in this uh, broad sweep that we've already examined this morning that, that our hearts have been brought back again to this marvelous way in which you would triumph that desolation and punishment and incredibly destructive and woeful outcome was marked out for the Abrahamic people because of their unfaithfulness, because of their inability to fulfill their election, their calling, their vocation on behalf of the world. But that would not be the last word for your faithful mercies to David, your oath to Abraham would stand. And the day would come when in a most unexpected way, you would raise up David's fallen tabernacle his fallen house, and you would rebuild the household of Israel by taking up their own brokenness and failing in yourself in order that all of your promises might be yes and amen. And as Paul said, that yes and amen has come in Jesus our Lord. I pray, Father, as we look more closely at this division of the kingdom and, and the destiny of this northern kingdom this week, that you would cause us to see not just a long and, and drawn out and perhaps tragic history, but, but ultimately the glory of, of your triumph that is in Christ our Lord, a triumph that we ourselves are sharers in, a triumph that secures for us a complete and a full glory. How blessed we are to be people of the living God. How blessed we are to be the people of a God whose love has triumphed and will continue to triumph. A God who is faithful in all things. Father, continue to lead us, continue to help us in our thinking. Continue, even as we consider these things this morning, to transform us in our understanding to renew us by the transforming of our minds. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we did a lot of reading, but I hope that it was uh, helpful in, in establishing some of this groundwork for us. I, I don't know how familiar everybody is with, with this story and with the progress of, of the Israelite kingdom. Uh, but again, it, it's critically important to understand that history in terms of the history of the Messiah himself. That Israel would find its own uh, apex of its history, its climax of history, the fulfillment of its own history in this one who would come, who wouldn't simply fulfill prophecies, but who himself would embody in himself what God had called Israel to be as the people of Abraham. So we saw that the unfaithfulness of the Davidic kingship, beginning with David, but more specifically this morning with Solomon, the way that he abused his authority to even uh, oppress his own people, that that circumstance was the historical basis for the dividing of the kingdom. And I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading in, in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, but God actually interestingly gave the same charge and promise to Jeroboam that he had given to David 
and to Solomon that he had actually even given to Saul. If you will walk before me faithfully, if you will keep my covenant, if you will shepherd my people faithfully in truth, then I will establish your house and your kingdom forever as I promised to David. And that's very interesting because we hear that and we say, well, wait a minute, you know, this kingdom was destined to go away. It was going to be apostate. You know, it wasn't going to be an enduring kingdom. Why would God promise that? Because it's consistent with, again, how he understood and treated the kingship in Israel. Saul himself could have never fulfilled the kingship. He was of the wrong tribe, right? He wasn't of the tribe of Judah. And yet God said, if you will walk before me, if you will be faithful, if you will keep my covenant, because that's the very nature of the Israelite kingship. That's the very nature of the sort of, um, of God was making clear, this is the sort of man who will be my king. And if he will be this sort of king, whoever he is, then I will establish his kingdom forever. So ultimately, this is pointing to the one who will come, who will finally at last be that sort of king. But God gives that same promise to Jeremiah. And interestingly, uh, the first thing that we see in the text is no sooner does God make that promise to him and deliver over the ten tribes, the northern ten tribes, to Jeroboam, uh, this is the son of Nevat. He's Jeroboam the first. There is another later Jeroboam. But no sooner does he do that, and then Jeroboam immediately starts departing from the Lord. Even with that privilege, even with that calling, even with that promise, he himself shows himself to be unfaithful. So what does he do? The law of Moses required that all Israelites would go up to Jerusalem three times a year. We know that, right? Passover, Feast of uh, Weeks, which was Pentecost in the spring, 40 days apart. And then in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So those three festal circumstances were times when all Israel, to the extent they could, were to go up to Jerusalem. And Jeroboam, who's now pulled away the northern uh, ten tribes, he says, if these Israelites, because they were still Israelites, if they go back to Jerusalem, which is the seat of David's kingdom, with Rehoboam, David's grandson on the throne, if they go back to Jerusalem three times a year, then they're going to get drawn back into David's kingdom. And what's going to happen is I'm going to end up having my kingdom disappear from underneath me. They will become loyal to my adversary. They will become loyal to Rehoboam. And so he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my own altars at Dan and Bethel in the north. And I'm going to raise up my own priesthood. The Levitical priesthood presided um, in association with the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to appoint my own priesthood. I'm going to build my own altars at Dan and Bethel, and we will worship Yahweh here. And eventually that became the worshiping of other gods as well, and we'll see that. But in the very first instance, he said, I'm going to establish my own place and system and structure of worship and priestly ministration in order to preserve my kingdom. 
And that's in the face of God having already said to him, if you will follow me, if you will be faithful to me in my covenant, I will secure your kingdom. I will secure your house. I will secure your, uh, your throne forever. So not only was he um, instituting his own system of worship counter to what God had prescribed in the law of Moses, but he was doing it in the face of God's own promise that I will do that for you if you will be faithful. He says, no, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to secure my own, uh, the, the well-being and future of my own kingdom on my own. So that became known as the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, the sin with which he caused Israel to sin. And you see that expression come up repeatedly through the history of the kings of Israel, the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as we pronounce it. That becomes the standard for assessing every subsequent king of Israel. It's a benchmark in Israel's uh, succession beyond him. And by Israel, again, I mean the northern kingdom of Israel after the dividing of the kingdom. You have Judah in the south, which consists of two tribes, David's tribe, Judah, and, and Benjamin, which was another uh, Judean tribe in that, that area. So the house of David is now only Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes are this northern kingdom of Israel. And what you see in the, the story of Israel's history is that these successors, these kings of Israel, were uniformly followed and promoted Jeroboam's example. They all continued in that sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So this is a foundational apostasy of the kingdom. And from the very beginning, the Israelite kingdom is grounded in and then it's nurtured in this apostasy. That's what characterizes the northern king kingdom. So Jeroboam in that way showed himself to be a false king. And unlike the sons of David, the, the Davidic line in the south, which is a line of genealogical descent for the most part, the kings in, in the northern kingdom don't follow that. God cuts off Jeroboam's line right off the bat. And so the kings in Israel tend to follow the pattern of pagan kingdoms, which is that they take the throne through conspiracy, through machinations, through uh, you know, all kinds of planning and subterfuge and agendas, through coup, through assassinations. That's the way in which the kings of Israel um, take the throne. And some of them reign for a very short time. But all of them are characterized by that same sort of unfaithfulness. So Israel is an apostate kingdom. Israel in the north is an apostate kingdom from the very beginning. As far as its history, I just want to treat it briefly in terms of these three phases. All of them pertain to the relationship between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The phases of, of Israel's history are, um, are determined by its relationship with Israel. Well, Jeroboam founded the kingdom and God had given it to him, but the founding of the northern kingdom was in this rejection of the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingship. We have no share in David. So at the very outset, there was hostility, there was opposition, there was a separation between these two houses of Israel. And that hostility, which and what became even warfare, characterized this first phase of Israel's history, beginning with Jeroboam. 
And that hostility and warfare continued up till uh, the time of probably the most famous Israelite king, Ahab. Most people don't know many of the kings, but they know Ahab. And Ahab marked the beginning of the second phase of Israel's uh, history. Again, Israel meaning the northern kingdom. And this saw a political and in some sense a, a, a kind of national alliance between Israel and Judah. Ahab gave his daughter in marriage to Jehoshaphat, who was the king, Jehoshaphat's son, who was the king in Judah. So he formed an alliance between him, uh, his kingdom and the kingdom of Judah in the south involving Jehoshaphat, primarily through marriage, which was typical in the ancient world. He had a, uh, Ahab's wife was Jezebel, again, another name that's familiar to a lot of Christians. And she becomes very notorious. This is a time where Israel and Judah become aligned, but it's also the time in which Israel reached its low point in its relationship with God. All of these Israelite kings had been uh, idolaters. They had all been unfaithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Ahab took that to a new low. He married this woman, Jezebel, who was a Sidonian princess, Sidon, uh, which still exists today. Tyre and Sidon are, are coastal cities associated with Lebanon. But she was a Sidonian princess. Back then, that area was called Phoenicia. And it was kind of a mercantile center. It was a, a huge commercial center because of shipping and and sea commerce and everything. Well, Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. He took her as his wife. And from the very beginning, she was intent on establishing Phoenician paganism as the religion, if you will, of Israel. Ultimately, what she sought to do was to eradicate the entire knowledge of Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh in Israel. So she pushed her husband to establish more and more the gods of Phoenicia, Baal. The, and, and primarily these were fertility gods. Uh, and, and the appeal of that was that, that the Israelites looked at the Phoenicians and they were prosperous. They were wealthy. Their, their society was strong and vibrant. And they said, these gods are blessing their people. If we embrace these gods, maybe it'll go well for us as well. But Jezebel was instrumental in leading the people of Israel more whole cloth, or at least attempting to lead them away from the God of Israel. But Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah, and that was the daughter that they gave to Jehoram, who was Jehoshaphat's son. So through marriage, they formed this alliance between Israel and Judah. And Athaliah, we'll see that more um, next time, but she becomes a huge influence in the undermining of Judah and even a threat to the throne of David. She's very much like her mother, but she's become a queen in Judah. So this alliance that's now formed between Israel and Judah, the open warfare has ended, but the alliance is continuing again to have detrimental effects to David's throne and kingdom, not by warfare, but by insidious corruption and the pollution of idolatry. 
So it's during this time that Elijah emerges. We see Elijah come on the scene and God raises him up to confront Israel and more narrowly Ahab and Jezebel uh, as kind of the figureheads of, of the low point of Israel's history. But he raises up Elijah to confront Israel with this duplicity. You see it even in Ahab himself. As I said, while he's completely uh, yielding to his wife, he's deferring to his own wife in leading Israel to a more complete rejection of Yahweh. He's also forming an alliance with Yahweh's king in Judah. So in a certain sense, he's embracing his, his Israelite brothers, the, the throne in the house of David in the south, while he's pushing his own people further and further away from the God of Israel. So Elijah is the one who God raises up to confront that duplicity, that hypocrisy. And the first thing that Elijah does is God sends him to proclaim to Ahab and to Israel that there will be no rain on Israel until God says a drought is coming on the land. And interestingly, and I don't know if you've noticed this when you've read through it, um, but Elijah, in, in the context of this drought, which is causing famine and, and you know death in Israel, God's God sends Elijah to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. And she cares for him and God provides for her as well. So a Sidonian princess and, and the Phoenician religion that's leading the people away from God and yet God shows mercy to a woman of Sidon which shows again this intent of a universal benevolence even though Sidon is in a sense at the center of the apostatizing of his people, he still is showing mercy on a widow of Sidon. And keep that in your mind as, we'll, as we close out today. So Elijah pronounces this famine or, or this drought, which will bring a famine on the northern kingdom of Israel. And this reaches its climax then when God sends him uh, to Ahab to bring in these priests of Baal to bring this massive confrontation on Mount Carmel. And this is in, in 17 and 18 of First Kings. All of these priests are gathered together and essentially what it is is let's see who is really God. And the challenge that Elijah brings is God is done with this duplicity. This is your moment of decision. He's done with this duplicity. If Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. You cannot hesitate between two positions. So choose. Who's it going to be? And the priests of Baal are told, call on Baal, call on your God and have him show that he's real. Let's see who the real God is. And they're crying out to Baal and they're cutting themselves and they're, you know, they're doing all of this kind of uh, ritual incantation trying to, to get Baal to come. And Elijah's mocking him and saying, where is he? Maybe he's using the restroom. Did he go away to a different country? Where's Baal? And when they're all done and they're worn out, then he has this altar built with 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, he cuts the sacrifice and he, and he puts the wood on the altar and he, he floods the whole thing with water. 
And then he calls on the God of Israel and fire comes down out of heaven. And, and even with everything soaked and water everywhere, uh, it, it just all is consumed in fire. The sacrifice, the wood, all, the altar, everything. And the people are so terrified, they say, God is God, we're going to serve him. So they appear to be making the right decision at that point in time. And they, and they kill all of the priests of Baal. Uh, but this is a turning point for Elijah as well. But the truth is, even though they say, yes, Yahweh is God and we will serve him, nothing changes in Israel. And the pattern continues. But this is Israel's turning point. This is the, the low point in their history under Ahab. And it's the point of decision. Are you going to return to the Lord or are you going to follow this path and suffer the consequences of it? And this is the turning point. And they make the wrong decision. And now all that is in front of them is just the passing of time until the desolation comes. So this is the low point in Israel's history. That's the second stage. The third and final stage then is marked by uh, renewed hostility between the two kingdoms. These, this political alliance and, and this kind of um, uh, working for expedience between Israel and Judah begins to fall apart because circumstances are changing. Political alliances are always based on expedience. And circumstances change what's expedient and what isn't expedient. And as circumstances are changing, now you see the hostilities between these two kingdoms reemerge. And I just mentioned kind of the high point of that, which is as the Assyrian Empire is gaining ascendancy and it's beginning to press itself farther south and west out of Mesopotamia, um, you have the... Israelite kingdom in the north forming an alliance with the Syrians, the Arameans, which lie just north of Israel, forming an alliance to try to protect themselves against the Assyrian forces which are making their way south. And what they do is they seek, they, they've been coming against uh, the house of David, the southern kingdom of Judah for, for some time, and they managed to uh, do a fair amount of damage and conquest, but they haven't been able to depose the king in Jerusalem or actually conquer the kingdom in the absolute sense. But now they're, they're poised to again make a, a final attempt at that. The Israel-Aramean alliance to depose Ahaz, who's the, the descendant of David on the throne of Judah, to depose him and put their own king on the throne of David so that they can bring the forces of Judah. They can basically bring that kingdom under their own authority as a third leg in their attempt to bolster their strength to resist the Assyrians. This is all political stuff. This is all geopolitics. And so they come against Judah. That's their intent. And when Ahaz finds out about this, he's terrified and he's fearful that he's going to lose his throne. And so what he does is he goes all the way and, and for up, up around those two and forms a formal alliance with the Assyrians. Rather than allying himself with, with his Israelite brethren and, and the Syrians in the north to resist the Assyrians, he says, I'm going to make an alliance with the Assyrians to protect me, to protect my kingdom. 
and have the Assyrians take out the Israelites and the Arameans to the north of me. That's the context of what you see in the Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, 8, and 9 as it moves through the book of Isaiah. And so the reason to bring that up is just to say that that kind of brings the conflict between these two kingdoms uh, to their apex. And yet what happens is God says, yes, the Assyrians will be the agent by which the northern kingdom will be destroyed, just as Ahaz intends. But what happens then is the Assyrians say, we're going to continue on south. We're going to come all the way into Judah. We're going to come all the way to Jerusalem. So the Assyrians double-cross Ahaz, the house of David, and it's God who intervenes. And you read this account where God sends out his angel and he, and he kills 185,000. The angel kills 185,000 of the Assyrian army. But God has said to Ahaz, you have trusted this foreign pagan empire to protect David's house and throne and kingdom. But what will protect you, what will preserve David's throne is not foreign alliances, but this principle of Emmanuel. God is with us. David's throne and kingdom, God is saying, are mine. I have pledged. David sits on my throne. This is my kingdom. I will preserve it through a supernatural intervention, not an arrow will fly over the walls of Jerusalem. I will deal with the Assyrian threat because of Emmanuel. I'm jealous for my house, for my throne, for my kingdom. They were his, and God would uphold them with a view to fulfilling his covenant promises to David. This is what Isaiah 7 through 9 are all about. So the promise of this coming seed is the one in whom God will ultimately fulfill this promise to David and his kingdom. But this is the way that God intervenes at that time. So God allows the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, but he keeps them back from destroying the southern kingdom of Judah. He intervenes on behalf of Judah and David's throne. Just as he had pledged, the kings whom Ahaz feared were now no more, and neither was the Israelite kingdom itself. You can read this again in 2 Kings 17. It wasn't even an Israelite kingdom anymore because the Israelites were, depo they were deported and the Assyrians brought in people from other conquered lands and settled them there. It wasn't even Israelite anymore. And that's the way it was at the time even that Jesus came into the world. So in conclusion, then, the cleaving of the Israelite kingdom was a major part of the working of, of the Lord's sword against David's house. This is what God had pledged to David. And that work of, of cleaving, that work of the sword, continued even after the kingdom was divided, first through hostility and warfare between the two kingdoms, but also, and probably more importantly, through the negative influence that they had on each other. They were better off fighting each other because when they were allied, then their idolatrous apostate tendencies, particularly from the north towards the south, uh, corrupted one another and furthered their departure as separate kingdoms from the Lord. So the point then is that Israel in the north 
effectively opposed David's house throughout its short existence, a couple of centuries. It split off in the context of opposition and hostility, and whether through warfare or whether through corrupting and polluting influence, it continued to oppose David's house and throne as they represented Yahweh's throne, Yahweh's kingdom. The people who were faithful to him, the king who was faithful to him. And yet through all of that, the Lord continued to call this apostate Israelite kingdom to repentance. They were the 10 tribes. They were covenant descendants of Abraham. That's what we read in Hosea. Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I give you up? When I restore you, I will not cast you away again. I will not destroy you again. So while the Lord was allowing the destruction of the northern kingdom, he granted a reprieve to David's house and kingdom, but that only served their detriment as well, and we'll see that next time. God gave a lease on life to Judah at the hands of the Assyrians. They were threatening Jerusalem under Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, and God delivered them. He gave Hezekiah and the throne of David a reprieve, but it didn't help them they only use that reprieve to turn farther and further away from the Lord. We'll see that next time. So God said to Hezekiah, I'm going to give you a lease on life. What did Hezekiah do? Deliver over the things of God to the Babylonians. So rather than learning from Israel's fate, Judah continued down the same path of apostasy until its violation and its guilt exceeded that of its northern counterpart. This is Ezekiel 23, if you go and you read that. For all the privilege and all of the mercy, the, the faithful um, holding together and preservation of God towards Judah, these two sisters, Aholabah, which is Jerusalem and Judah, Aholabah show, showed herself to be a worse adulterer than her sister Ohalah, Israel in the north. And in the end, she met the same fate. So Israel, it, from the very beginning, had been an apostate nation, indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. You see that even in the way their kingship progressed. The conspiracy, the murder, the coups, all of the things that were taking place, the practices of their faith. But God remained faithful to them as Abraham's covenant children. He kept sending his prophets. Elijah himself is the climax of that. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. This is the moment. This is the moment of decision for you. He'd no longer allow them to divide their loyalty. They could return to him with a whole heart or he would abandon them to their false deities and the consequences of it. And as I said, they assured him at that time of their commitment. Yes, Yahweh is God. We will follow him. But their hearts remained distant and disinterested and therefore their destiny was settled. Israel would go the way of destruction. And Judah would have its own time of decision, as I said, in relation to Hezekiah and the Assyrians, but it too would miss its opportunity to repent and to renew its faithfulness. And you see this played out. Again, I've said 
what you see in Jesus' own life and interaction with Israel was a playing out of Israel's own history, but in a way that fulfilled Israel's history. In the Messiah, Israel became what God intended it to be. But Israel's history is played out even in Jesus' own relationship with his people. So my concluding statement here is that centuries later after this, a young Galilean prophet would take up the same theme, a day of decision, with his Israelite brethren, challenging them with their own moment of crisis and decision. The moment that all previous moments had been building toward. And they too would assert their faithfulness, but coming days would show otherwise. And these are these last readings that I want to have from Luke. But the gospel writers very much understand this. And this young Galilean prophet is obviously Jesus himself. Luke chapter 4, he comes out of the wilderness. He's just, he's been baptized. He's shown solidarity with Israel as son of God. God has affirmed him, his faithful son, the one in whom he's well pleased. He goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days a kind of recapitulation of Israel's test of sonship in the wilderness. He triumphs. He is the faithful son. He comes out of the wilderness as son of God, full of the spirit, the faithful Israelite. This is chapter 4 of Luke. And he returns from the wilderness and he comes to uh, his own town. So let's pick this up then in verse 14 of, of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee, the year of release. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? See, he's in Nazareth. He's in the town he grew up. They knew him. They knew his family. And he said, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, the things, these great mighty works, these healing works, these, these miraculous things that we've heard that you've done at Capernaum do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. See what he's pointing them back to at the time of decision. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Elisha succeeds Elijah. He takes up that mantle. 
many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and yet none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You see what he's saying? They're saying, do these great works here. We're your people. Heal us. Bless us. And he's saying a prophet is not welcome in his own country. Remember your own history, the time of decision when the Lord came to you and you refused him. And his mercy went out to the Gentiles. They understood what he was getting at. And they were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up to cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. It was not yet his time. And then flip over to chapter 13. This is now Jesus making his way towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to do this final work that God has sent him to do. And as he's on the road, pick this up in verse 22, Luke 13, as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, are just a few being saved? And the question is not how many are God's elect and how many are going to perish and go to hell. The question is, you have come as the savior of Israel. How many in Israel are going to be saved? And what will be the nature of that deliverance? You've come to the house of Israel. What will this look like? And he said, strive to enter by the narrow door. This is again Israel's exhortation, the moment of decision. Yahweh's return to Zion. Will you receive him? Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say, I don't know where you are from. And you will say to him, then, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. We're your people. We're the people of Yahweh. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. I do not know who you are. Depart from me, you evildoers. And then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. You, the people of Israel. And they will come from east and west and from north and south, just like the widow of Zarephath, just like Naaman the Syrian. Who in Israel is going to be saved? Be very careful. They will come from all around, east, west, north, south. They will come from distant places, and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God. Some who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. And then lastly, chapter 19, and this is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, your king comes to you. Behold, your king comes to Zion. He rides into Jerusalem, chapter 19, verse 28. 
After he said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village opposite you in which you enter and you will find a colt tied up on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, you come down the Mount of Olives, cross the Kidron Valley, and you go up into Jerusalem. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, proclaiming him to be the messianic king, proclaiming their embrace of him, laying their garments on the road, the palm fronds, right? They're receiving their king. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. They will recognize the day of Yahweh's return to Zion. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. Your day of decision has come. For the day shall come upon you and your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. The Roman siege is coming in 70 AD. It will be done away. You did not know. You did not know. So Jesus himself recognized that Israel's various times of decision that God had given. Israel in the north had a time, a primary time. Judah in the south had a time. Both of them answered wrongly. Both of them missed their opportunity. And now that would reach its head in Jesus himself. What would the nations do with what would the nation do with him? What would the Abrahamic people do with him? And we know what they did with him. They failed their time of decision. And yet, in that rejection of him would be the triumph through which God would reconstitute Israel and Judah, bring them together and gather in the nations. God would triumph through their rejection. It was precisely through that seeking to be rid of him that he would bring them back to himself. That's the triumph of our God. Let me close in prayer. Father, these are marvelous things and certainly things that the children of Israel never expected. Who could have imagined that you would triumph through the climactic opposition and rejection of your people? That those to whom you came those who had longed and, and waited and expected, who were waiting for the day of Messiah, who could have known that they would reject the one that was sent to them? And yet through 
that rejection would come restoration and healing and renewal. And so it would be for all the earth. Through that triumph, you would heal the enmity. You would banish the curse. You would reconcile all things to yourself. And Father, as those who've been reconciled to you, not because of who we are, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our fidelity or our constancy in any way, but because of your goodness and your persevering faithfulness to your purposes for the creation. I pray that we would be a people who could actually rest in you, a people who could be delighted to be your people, a people who could be settled and at peace, a people who could celebrate in worship with a glory and an exultation, a joy that is full of, of glory. Our God has triumphed. What a marvelous love. What a triumphal love. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand Israel's history in this way and to understand the Messiah as the one in whom all of these things have been fulfilled. To see a God of the impossible, a God of the marvelous, a God who works in ways that we could never expect and a God whose triumph is complete, a God who is worthy of all worship and devotion. Help us to be such a people and help us to be a people who proclaim you in truth, a people who proclaim your gospel to a world that needs to hear good news. Grow us up in all things into this one whose life we share. And Father, help us to be faithful stewards of that life with one another and in our testimony to the watching world. Bless us in these things. Cause your name to be exalted in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.